for me today. Thanks, Joanna. Let's quiet ourselves to be ready to hear from Gordy. Lord God, thank you so much for the word that you have birthed in Gordy's heart and mind and spirit through your Holy Spirit. Thank you that this is a message that you have already been working in him and in Kathleen and in their lives over the last few years. And it's something that they've been invigorated by, that they've been blessed by learning how to do this in so, so, so many capacities. And they've done this for so many years. So Lord, I ask that you would bless this word today, that it would be sweet as it comes to us and that we would be especially aware of the gift of Pentecost today in how you come and speak to us and cause us to be welcomed and welcoming. And I ask this in your precious name, Jesus, amen. Amen, thank you so much, awesome, awesome. So I'm gonna continue to use the, the slide even though you can't see it, because I'm kind of oriented to that. So if you see me looking off over there, it's, uh, I really love Stephen and Karen, but that's not why I'm looking off over there. Um, <clears throat> so um, I uh, was raised a Pentecostal, as you heard me say at the beginning of the service. Does anybody know what a Pentecostal is? Okay, a few of you do. Um, I, I was raised in a Pentecostal preacher's home, and Pentecost Sunday was always a very special day. I was, I was shocked years later to find out that the rest of the church celebrated Pentecostal, Pentecost Sunday too. Pentecostal Sunday is what I called it. And, um, and it, it was a special day because Pentecostals back in my day were a bit marginalized. Um, we were kind of from the other side of the tracks, if you know what I mean. And a lot of us were poor and uh, of ethnic minorities. Pe the Pentecostal movement was started by an African-American by, by the name of William Seymour, who had one eye. And, uh, oh, he's blind in one eye. I think he had two eyes, but one was blind. And, yeah, it's an amazing story. If you ever want to just look it up, even on uh, Wikipedia, I read the story of Azusa Street. It's a great story. And um, so it had a real move among the African uh, Americans and around the world. And uh, so Pentecost Sunday, for me as a kid, was kind of vindication for my existence. And uh, after all, it was the very first disciples in my mind it says in Acts 2.4, which was our verse, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so in our view, if the disciples needed it, we all do, right? So Acts 2.4 was kind of our, our verse. And of course, at that time, we didn't realize that it was more descriptive, not prescriptive. Do you know the difference? Descriptive is when scripture describes something. Prescriptive is when we say that because it's saying that, 
everybody has to do that. And uh, I think through maturing and learning, we, we found out that um, is, is that it was descriptive of the fact that when the Holy Spirit comes, things happen. But we can't always copy exactly what he's going to do. Uh, but having said that, I would strongly encourage you, if you're hungry for a deeper prayer life, to ask the Holy Spirit for a prayer language. Uh, it doesn't mean you're more spiritual. It doesn't mean you're better than anybody else. It doesn't mean you have to. If you don't want to, Jesus said it's about hunger and it's about thirst. But if there's a longing in you to increase your prayer vocabulary, I highly commend praying in tongues and interpretation. And the Holy Spirit will, will give it to you if, if you ask. And, um, but it's not something you have to do. It's for me something that is part of my prayer arsenal do you want to call it that? Uh, that's part of listening and silence and Lectio Divina and all the other practices of the church. So it's not one or the other. In fact, I found tongues really moves incredibly well with silence. So in other words, you have... We used to kid Pentecostals that our only quiet time was between breaths. But actually, we strongly believe in silence, so we strongly believe in waiting on God. And of course, the vineyard movement is very, has a strong tradition of waiting on God and listening to the Quaker influence on, in Wember. But when you think of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, when you think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, when you think of Pentecost Sunday, what comes to your mind? What are some, just throw out some adjectives to me or some nouns that describe to you what happened on the day of Pentecost. What was, what was going on? Chaos. Party. Fire. Languages. Power. Power. Yep. Kirsten? Yes. Yeah, it was. It was a big festival, wasn't it? Missions. Hmm? Confusion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it never came to my mind, and, and all of these answers are, are correct. I mean, these were all part of what happened on Pentecost, but it never came to my mind growing up in all of my teaching I'd heard about Pentecost that it had anything to do with hospitality. I don't know why, but hospitality seems to be one of those, I don't know, kind of those quiet, homespun kind of, characteristics that, you know, it's nice. Somebody has a gift of hospitality. The fact of the matter is we're all called to hospitality. I do believe that there are some people who have a special gift of hospitality, but I believe that hospitality is something we're all called to. And if we look at our definition again, is it's about creating space for another. That's hospitality. And next, I've kind of put this Sunday and next Sunday together. Next Sunday, we'll explore a little more briefly how Pentecost in the Old Testament was all about welcoming the marginalized and the stranger to the party that Dan was talking about. It, it was a party. Pentecost in the Old Testament was a party, a, a harvest party, a harvest festival, but God wanted to make sure that everybody could come 
So he said, make sure you leave some gleanings so that everybody can come to this party. And so just before, uh, we don't have the reading for this, uh, the text on your sheet, uh, just simply because I wanted to, to get at least the other readings done and we were at short on time. But I'd like to do the reading today for the text from John chapter 20. And I would like to uh, use your imagination. They say that you should always read... Uh, or, what, let, let me just rephrase that. They, it, when, when it comes to a novel and a book... A novel, sorry, and a movie. Um, they always talk about how that the when when you've read the novel, the movie is disappointing. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. Your imagination. C.S. Lewis talked about this. I don't know how much he was into movies, but he talked about the imagination, the power of the imagination, and what novels do is they just. They just paint. And I think sometimes when we always have the video and we always are, you know, we can get lazy in our imagination. So let's take advantage of this breakdown today to use our imaginations a little more and go into this scene where the disciples, it's actually ingenious that the reading today goes, takes us right back to the day of the resurrection, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. We're back there now. Now, what's that got to do with Pentecost? Well, it's, it's, it's quite an amazing connection we'll look at today. But before we, re, before we read this, however we end up reading it, let's just r- remind ourselves that hospitality is the act of making generous and gracious space for another, right? We've been talking about it, and that it, that it starts in the heart. It's not just having somebody over for dinner or letting somebody stay in your house, as great as that is. It's amazing how many homestay students that my friend, my our homestay students uh, have as friends who tell us that they they stay in people's homes, but they don't feel at home. They don't feel welcome. When someone walks in our house, we tell them our house is your house. It's it's us. It's not we're going to have a little compartment in the fridge. And I know sometimes practically you have to do that. I'm not criticizing if some of you've had to do that, but. There's, it's more about the heart. It's creating a gracious space that's saying, you're family. You're welcome here. And it's always such a joy and a privilege for each, each homestay that comes into our home. Here's another unique human being that God get, entrusts to us with the honor and the privilege of just loving and serving and just connecting as family. And, and Hyo Young, this is the latest homestay student that we've had who got to be here with my kids and grandkids, and, 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 and they've included her in their family as well. It's just, it's just such a beautiful thing. So it's about creating space, and it starts in the heart. And Brad Jerzak says that it's the foundation of, of, of Judeo-Christian values, and it's grounded, and we, we went on to say that it's grounded in the loving nature and the character of God. God is hospitable. God is welcoming it's witness in the, in the love song of creation. I know some of you think Genesis 1 was a scientific document. And I'm not saying there may not be some science in there, but the whole genre of Genesis 1 is, is poetry. It's a love song. And, and if you look at the, the pattern of Genesis 1, and we saw this in our first reading today, do you remember? It says God created the oceans, and there was enough space for all the fish and the animals and the sharks and the... 
Right? And then it says he made the sky and there was enough room for all the birds to fly. And then it says he made the land so all the animals and the creeping things and the creeps could creep around. Right? And then he made the, the land for us. There was enough room. There's enough room. Hospitality says there's more than enough. We talked about last week how that the greatest enemy to hospitality is the spirit of poverty. Not just about money, but time and energy, right? If we always feel like we don't have enough money, we don't have enough time, we don't have enough energy, then we're always, our space is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, right? And probably the most striking part, and I, this is where I really, 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 really wish that you had a slide. Because, and after the service, maybe I'll leave it up so you can come and look at this. But this is a picture of a swan. And this, um, I, in the, the very second verse of Genesis, it talks about the hospitality of the Holy Spirit. How? It describes the Holy Spirit like a bird hovering over its young. And it's, it's the Holy Spirit hovering over the unformed ele elements of creation. It's the image of a bird protecting and nurturing the new life that is forming under her. David Benner, in his masterful book called Surrender to Love, talks about his morning prayer walks by a lake where he watched a pair of swans preparing a nest. And they had, so he watched these swans each day as he walked by, select a location for the nest, and then take two weeks to carefully construct the nest. Each day, the male would take, bring reeds to the female in his beak. She would take them in her beak, chew on them, till they were soft enough to form into a nest. Carefully, she would then weave the, these reeds together, shaping the container for the new life that was to emerge from within her. And as soon as she had finished this nest, the female swan settled on top of it and she didn't move for several weeks in spite of rain and cold and wind. Some days, she didn't move. And each day, the, the male would bring her food, keep her alive. And that was the only time is when she just reached up to receive what he brought her. Suddenly, one day, as Benner was walking, he saw a white, a little ball of fluffy white down beneath her, and still she did not move. She continued to sit on her young chicks, only gradually allowing them to begin to creep out from underneath her. Then, in perfect rhythm with the young chicks' first moves towards independence, the mother's attentive and protective presence began to allow space for growth. So that's part of hospitality too, is this all the while watchfully hovering over them. This is the image in the creation narrative that the, the writer of Genesis gives us of, um, of the Holy Spirit. That's the image, right? Is this, is this bird creating space, the hospitable Holy Spirit? 
So it's with that in mind. Think about that image of the Holy Spirit as we, as we read our text. I want you to imagine that you are with the disciples, and it seems like all, all 11 of them, Judas obviously was gone, but at least the 11 were all finally together. It was the first time in the day. There'd been kind of little snippets here and there, and they'd, they had talked to each other, and they'd heard rumors, and Peter and John had gone, and they'd talked to this crazy Mary Magdalene who claimed that Jesus was risen, and there was rumors. Fly. So finally they all get together, but they realize it's illegal for them to even exist. That they're very likely being hunted by zealous Jews to do to them what had been done to Jesus. It was a scary time for them. And so it says they're in... This room, perhaps John Mark's house, perhaps the very room, by the way, that the day of Pentecost happened in. It probably was the same room. Because John Mark had a large room available that was often used by Jesus and the disciples of Jerusalem. So it says they're locked for fear of the Jews. So can I say that Again, we're talking about impediments to hospitality. Probably one of the greatest impediments to hospitality is fear of the other. Fear of what people will do. It closes us up, locks us up, makes us afraid of those that are different than us, right? Instead of welcoming and opening. Heart of God. And so, just imagine that you're with the disciples you don't know if the knock on the door is going to be a, an officer to arrest you, right? And it says in John 20, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, I don't know about you, but there, there's just something really, really wrong about this, Okay? You have to, like, peace be unto you is, is, it wasn't some kind of spiritual thing. It's like on young house, say, oh, it's, it, was a, it was a way of saying hi. Okay? There's something really wrong about all that's happened. You know, he's been arrested. They've been chased. He's been tortured. And he's been killed. And they're in trauma. And then these rumors that he's risen from the dead, and then he doesn't bother to come through the door. He walks through a wall and says, Hi. <laughs> There's something really wrong with that. It's like, how's it going? No big deal. No big deal. Hey. It's almost as if nothing has happened. And so they're kind of shell-shocked. So it's in the next verse says, and he's, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, why did he do that? Hmm? Proof, yeah? What, 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 what was the significance of his hands and side? Help me. Scars. Scars. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that Scripture never actually says that he left scars after the resurrection. It implies it. This is definitely an implication that there were scars. 
And it seems like here and with Thomas, remember he had to deal with Thomas a little bit later, that there, there was something about those scars and that side, those wounds in his side, that was proof. It, it kind of solidified, okay, this is not, I'm not having a hallucination here. This is real flesh. This is real. This is not some spirit thing. Woo, freaky. It's human, right? And I don't, I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but I think there is something about a, the fact that when, when Jesus rose from the dead, we know that he had a bloodied corpse when the resurrection power of God came into him and raised him from the dead. And yet, for some reason, the living God, who has all the power in the universe, has chosen to retain his scars. There's something about that. We worship a creator with scars on him. And there's something about that with regards to hospitality that is so important. I think it was Bob Mumford, the old charismatic preacher, used to say, never trust a man who doesn't have a limp. Remember Jacob, when he wrestled with God, and he was such a self-achieving, motivated type dude. And maybe it's never trust a God who doesn't have scars on him. Well, we'll leave that there, because I, th I think there's... There, that's just something we can, we can uh, savor and be with maybe this week, that we follow a God with scars on him. But again, Jesus says, peace be unto you. I think, I think it says they were overjoyed, but then there's kind of like, ah. Now there's a whole mixture of feelings, perhaps, that are pouring into to their hearts. And so he has to again say, peace be unto you. No, actually, you know what? The hi that I said, the, the hello, how was it going? I actually really meant that. It wasn't like a little religious thing that, you know, a cultural norm here. I really mean this. Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And then with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, you have to understand this is the first time they've seen him in this context. We think maybe Peter saw him before this. Of course, the two disciples from the road to Emmaus may have been in that room and saw him. Mary Magdalene, she may have been in the room. We don't know at the time. She may have seen him, or she did see him, we know. But it's, it's the first time where they're all together, and there's this kind of awkward, right? It's awkward. Why? Why is it awkward? Peter denied him. They all chickened out. They all ran away. They abandoned him. So it's kind of like, okay, it's nice you're alive, but oops, awkward. Right? So he says, I love what he says to them. He says, you know what, guys? Peace. We're, we're, we probably will need to have some difficult conversations. But you know what? It's okay. We're good. That's literally what he's saying. We're good. We're okay. And 
he then says to them, oh, by the way, if you think you've been disqualified, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. You're all commissioned. It doesn't matter whether you go to uh, Thailand as a missionary or you're just a missionary to that international student in your own home or that neighbor across the street or those workmates at work or those schoolmates at school. You're sent. I'm sending you. Every one of you are sent by me. By God. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And then it says, now this is where I want you to use your imagination a little more. It says he then, and I don't know if I want anybody doing this, but Jesus, he then breathed on them. Now how do you breathe? Like, if I was to breathe on you, I think I brushed my teeth, but if I was to breathe on you, like that's, that's still, I mean, it, 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 they're big guys. There's at least 11 of them, maybe more. How do you breathe on a group of people? So I don't, huh? Yeah, I mean, how, it says he breathed on them. So we're not sure if there was like this sonic, like that, that came out of his, his mouth or whether he went to each one of them and breathed on them like that. But it was real, and it was tangible. And what story comes to mind when he does that? What do we, what's, it, what's an image of? Hmm? Superman. Genesis 1, yeah, or Genesis 2, right? It says that God carefully formed Adam out of the red dust, formed a human being that contained, by the way, at the time, male and female, and breathed on him the breath of life. Hadam means human or humanity. Breathed, distinct from every other creature. Didn't do it for the whales, didn't do it for the donkeys, didn't do it for the birds, but he breathed on humanity God's breath. Put his image in us. He said, I am present. He said to the rest of creation, hey, anytime you think I've abandoned you, look at my image. Humanity is here. That's a sign that I'm with creation. And he breathed the breath of life. So we, of course, messed it all up, and there's several thousand years of human history, but now it's like the creator again walks to the new humanity and breathes on them the breath of life. And there's different theologies around this. If you're Eastern Orthodox, you would say, no, the breath of life was already in us, but his, his breath was renewing that. Some others say, well, the Holy Spirit then came into them. I don't know what your geography is or how, how you figured it out, but we know it was good. It was good. He breathed on them. What do you think happened in them when he did that? Any guesses? What did... Did they feel anything, do you think? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Must have, maybe? Must have? Got two must haves. Uh, I think they were strengthened. Strengthened? Fear Good. Went. Fear went. Maybe it helped with that peace issue, you know? You're saying, yeah, right, peace be unto us. Well, take some peace. Yeah? Hmm. Can you just stop for a moment and let him come to you? Would you like to do that? Receive the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, give you a little Greek while you're just putting yourself in a posture right now? 
You know what I love about this word, receive the Holy Spirit? It's a very active word. It literally means take. It's like if somebody offers you something. I was asking my grandkids this week. I said, if somebody offers you a gift and you don't take it, what, 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 what's, what, what comes to your mind? They go, well, that would be very rude. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's it. But the point is, in this whole Greek, the Greek is this, it literally means to actively lay hold of, to accept what is available, and it emphasizes volition, assertiveness, the assertiveness of the receiver. So, Jesus literally breathed on them, and then he said, take the Holy Spirit. So, right now, what does that look like for you to take the Holy Spirit? I think, I think there's different ways. But just listen to your own heart. How do, how do I create space? Maybe my temple needs to be cleansed like Jesus cleansed the temple. It had all kinds of good stuff in it. Godly stuff. But it was clutter. And it had to be, space had to be created for the Holy Spirit to come. Taking sometimes can mean, I sometimes ask people to take a deep breath. We do that at the beginning of our service. In some ways, that's a way of receiving the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Hmm. He's the spirit of hospitality. He's hovering over you. I think another way to receive the Holy Spirit proactively is to ask someone to pray for you. I think that's one of the primary ways is you, you admit your weakness and I'm not in this alone. I need you guys to pray for me. Thank you. Because you do. I know you do. And I pray for you. But sometimes it's specifically saying, could you pray for me? And there's vulnerability in that, isn't there? Mm -hmm. I find just being silent, especially if I'm silent with somebody else, it's incredibly vulnerable. We're so used to filling the space with da, 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 aren't we? We're so used to filling the space with what I call fig leaves, covering our vulnerability. And there's something about being silent together with God and each other that creates space for the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, ask and you will receive, seek and you'll find, knock. So, so those are ways that you can take the Holy Spirit. We'll give more time in a minute. I think one of the primary ways we receive the Holy Spirit is when we're invited and Jesus said, come, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And he said in John, my words are spirit and life. They're not flesh, they're spirit and life. So when we take his body and his blood, we're taking the Holy Spirit. We're receiving the life and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he concludes by saying, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. I thought, well, that's a strange. What's he saying? Do we have the power to go around and say, you're damned? Damn you. Hmm? Well, if we look at all his other teachings, I don't get that, do we? I don't get that. I don't get the right for us to damn or condemn people. What he's saying is, I love what 
Eugene Peterson's paraphrase says. He says, if you forgive someone's sins, they're gone for good. If you don't forgive sins, what are you going to do with them? <laughs> I love that. If you don't forgive sins. And actually, I looked at the Greek and the parsing of it, and that's, that's pretty accurate. If you don't forgive sins, what are you going to do with them? I've given you provision to get rid of sins, your sins, other people's sins. What you've done, what's been done to you, I've given you the provision to get rid of them. So if you don't forgive, what are you going to do with all those sins? Isn't that amazing? Because I think after they realized that he'd forgiven them, he, they started thinking, well, that guy that was cursing you, Jesus, and that guy that spit on you, and you know that guy that threw that sword at you, and you know all those people that mocked you? Let's go get them. Revenge. Get those Muslims. Get those. Oops. He says, no. And he literally says, the word says, if you retain those sins, they will be retained. The, 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 he, the Greek there is literally, let it go. Just let it go. Let it go. Let it go. This is your mission. Let it go. I can still remember pushing Hannah when she was three years old on the swings, Templeton Park. Let it go. Let it go. Six o'clock in the morning. Elena still loves it, yeah. So surely revenge was entering their minds, and he puts all the way. He says, let it go. Just let it go. Yes, it was costly. It's not cheap. The story of the prodigal son tells us this. Timothy Keller brings this out in his beautiful book, The Prodigal Father. Often we think that when the father welcomed the son home, and this is why this, the other son was so mad, it was enough for him to just hug the son and say, okay, it's okay, you know, you, you, you blew your inheritance. But by putting the ring, the shoes, the staff, the robe on the son, he was restoring his inheritance. The only problem was he'd wasted all his inheritance. So what, what happens then? You've got to take what's left and split it up again. Forgiveness is costly. It's not cheap. It hurts. And some of you have had to forgive stuff way beyond what I could ever comprehend. I've had some bad stuff happen to me, but I, some of your stories just, I go, oh God, it's costly to forgive. It's costly. But Jesus reminds us that it's the way that we get rid of sin, our sin and the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So I now have on my slide a beautiful picture of bread and a glass of wine, cup of wine. I don't know if you saw that picture that Miles was passing around this week. Yeah. Big, big sign says water and a liquor store. And then below it is all these bottles of wine. And then at the bottom it says, Jesus was here. <laughs> I love that. Miles and Karen, when they were part of our church, part of their ministry was my mental health. So they'd always send me these, these things once or twice a week, and it sounds like he's picked it up again. <laughs> so I, I just say receive the Holy Spirit. If somebody could maybe run and get the kids, just let them know we're ready. I think they said they both wanted, both classes wanted to be part of that. Thank you so much. So I just want to encourage you to receive the Holy Spirit today. I, 
and I know that what that looks like on any given day could be different. I think there's part of me that I like formulas. I like, well, you know, that worked last time. I'll... And it doesn't work, <laughs> right? Because God doesn't like formulas. He's relational. He wants relationship with us, individually, corporately. And we just, as soon as we get a formula, then we're in charge again, right? We decide. And we begin to treat God like a drug, yep. like an addiction. And he won't be an addiction for us. Sorry. Uh, requires listening, being with him, being attentive, being attentive to our own selves, our hearts. And, and sometimes it's just murky. I, I just say, Lord, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but I just feel so full of fear and worry, and lust, pride. What do I do? So even the taking part, I think he will guide. He will lead us. He will, he will draw us into his. But I believe that communion is a gift that he gives us corporately. He knows that even though he's not a God of formulas, that sometimes we just need some tangible help for our faith. And I believe communion is a tangible way that he said, I will always meet you there. Now, don't tell me how that's going to be or what that's going to look like, but I will always meet you there. So Paul, writing the Corinthians, said, examine yourselves. And I, many people have wrestled with what that means, but I personally believe that it's related to Matthew 5, where Jesus said, you know, when you go to the altar and you know that there's a broken relationship with somebody, he said, you leave your gift at the altar and you go and make yourself right. You, you go and be reconciled. And I'm not saying that that means that you can't have communion until you've, you've literally been fully reconciled. It just means that in your, your heart, you posture yourself to say, Lord, I will not separate this action from this relationship with this person. I can't be dualistic about this. It's all connected. It's all connected. So maybe today it's just receiving the grace to be able to go and be restored to fellowship with them. But it means setting your heart in a posture of reconciliation and forgiveness. That's what that's about. I think it also means that we allow the Holy Spirit to come and take out the, the clutter whether that's actual sin or whether it's just good things that are just cluttering our life and suffocating that life of God in us. But why don't we just take a moment and just, just while the kids are coming in, and if they come in the middle of doing this, that's okay. Just, just again to be quiet before the Lord and just examine our hearts and prepare our hearts for communion and Realize the only thing that disqualifies you from this is if you just say in your heart, I don't want to, I don't believe this is for me. Otherwise, it's for you. Whosoever will may come. But let's just ask the Lord to search our hearts and prepare ourselves to receive.
I'm just going to invite Rick and his helper, whoever you've got today. Merrick, is it? Come on up, guys. Thanks for helping today to serve. I think normally the way that the vineyard does this is we take the bread first, then the cup. Um, of course, there's no rules because it seems like one text, Jesus actually reversed the order. So we're not, we're not bound to that, but just for organization's sake. Um, so Rick and Merrick are going to first serve in a moment our, our folks here at the front. Um, and then after they're done, uh, we do have a gluten-free option as well that's available here for those who would like to not have gluten in the bread. So Paul said, after I received from the Lord that which I have declared to you, that after he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do drink this cup in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death till he comes. And all that's available through his death, his forgiveness, healing. If you need healing today, there's a lot of sickness and bugs going around. And let's, let's agree for healing today. So, uh, just want to bless you to come. We usually form a line right up the middle. Just uh, come to Merrick first, and then Rick. That's great. And then if you need some prayer, you can stay up for prayer or go back to your seat and get prayer. And... Uh,